Welcome to the latest word from the church at Severn Run. Our church is located in Severn, Maryland, and is easily accessible from anywhere in the D.C. Baltimore area. You can subscribe for regular updates or check in weekly for the latest information by using our website, severinrun.com. Thank you for visiting. And now, today's message. Assumptions, when left untested, become barriers. And barriers, when left unchallenged, well, they become walls. And walls, when left intact, they become reality. You see, the assumption was quite some time ago that it couldn't be done, that it was physically impossible. Uh, Hundreds, even thousands had tried, but no one had succeeded. In fact, they got to the place where they were so convinced that it couldn't be done. In the halls of academia, papers were actually written about the physiological barriers that prevented this event, this accomplishment to actually take place. Everyone throughout society was convinced it couldn't be done until, of course, about 62 years ago when a medical student by the name of Roger Bannister ran the mile in 3 minutes and 59 seconds. Prior to that time, everyone was convinced that the 4-minute mile could not be broken. After Sir Roger broke the 4-minute mile, his record lasted for 45 days before a runner in Australia by the name of John Landy ran the mile in 3 minutes and 58 seconds. And since then, it's estimated that over 2,000 runners have broken the 4-minute mile, including at least six high school students in the United States and a man in his 40s. You see, uh, assumptions, when left unchallenged, untested, They become barriers, and barriers, when left unchallenged, they become walls, and walls, when left intact, they become reality. I guess the same was true of Tenzig Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary almost 60 years ago, well, just a little bit over 60 years ago, when they summited Mount Everest. Prior to that, uh, many had tried. In fact, several had died. It was believed that it simply could not be done because it had not been done. But since Sir Edmund and Tenzig Norgay summited Mount Everest, it's estimated that over 3,500 people have reached the summit. And the same was true about the sound barrier until 1947 when a pilot by the name of Chuck Yeager in a plane called Glamorous Glennis broke the sound barrier. Fifty years later, an RAF pilot by the name of Andy Green broke the sound barrier in a car. You see, assumptions, when left untested, they become barriers, and barriers, when left unchallenged, they become reality, and reality when, or walls, and when walls are left intact, they become reality. And I suppose it's okay, and it's acceptable when it's physical feats, or athletic feats, or even engineering feats, but the problem comes when those assumptions that become barriers, that become walls, become realities, are assumptions that are made about human beings. In fact, those assumptions, the ones that are often made from a distance based on appearance, 
those are the most dangerous assumptions. I'd like to read a passage of scripture to you. It's found in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 58. Just a handful of verses. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. It was John Connolly who said, it's not easy being homeless. It's not easy being poor. It's a full-time job, actually. That's what some people who criticize the homeless, or at least some of them for not going and getting jobs, don't understand. They already have a full-time job. It's called survival. You see, when you live on the streets, you have to get in line pretty early if you hope to get food. You have to get in line even earlier if you want a place to stay outside or inside uh, away from the inclement weather. If you live on the streets, then there's a pretty good chance that everything you own, you carry on your back. You don't have a lot of energy. You're almost always tired because you never really get a full night's sleep and you never quite have enough food to power your body. What energy you do have, you often have to spend scavenging for those things that wear out that you did have. That cuts and abrasions, the kind that you and me would have that would heal in just a couple of days. If you live on the streets, it'll take you a couple of weeks or three for them to heal, or maybe they don't heal at all. They just get infected and turn to something else. You can't remember the last time you had a shower. Your clothes are almost always wet. One of the hardest things to find is water. You, you wouldn't think it, but it really is when you're on the streets to find water. So you go around thirsty almost all of the time. And sometimes you sleep in parks, and sometimes you sleep on the street, and sometimes you sleep in a doorway somewhere until the police come along and they move you on. Or maybe if the police are sympathetic, maybe they'll take you to a shelter. But most of the time, if it's at night, by the time you get to the shelter, the shelter will already be full, the beds will be full, and all of the mats will be full. But maybe the shelter is still sympathetic, and they offer you a chair in the entryway, but health and safety means they have to keep the entryway lighted, and the chair isn't that comfortable, and so you can't really sleep there. So you head back out onto the streets to try to find a place to just sleep for a little while. And that night turns into another week, and that week turns into another month, and it turns into another year, and you realize that nothing has really changed for all the years you've been on the streets. 
And maybe you remember, maybe you remember what it was like to be young. Maybe you remember that you had a bed once and you had parents. Maybe you remember that you used to play with kids and you used to have hopes and dreams that there was a time when you wanted to be an engineer or a singer or a nurse. And maybe if you think hard enough, you can even remember the time when you were wanted or the time when you were loved or just the time when people didn't look at you like you were so much human refuse. And you curl up behind a dumpster somewhere and you close your eyes and you try to sleep. A couple of thousand years ago, there lived a man named Jesus. And the most important thing I can tell you about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. And long about Mark chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples, the 12 guys that he did life with, they had been doing some pretty busy stuff. Ministry and life had been pretty intense. And so Jesus took them away from the regular stomping grounds and he took them up north uh, just right on the Mediterranean Sea to a little village, kind of town really, called Tyre. And it was there. He didn't want anyone to really know that they were there and that they were hanging out. I guess maybe he wanted to disciple uh, his disciples some. He wanted to invest in them or maybe he just wanted them to be able to rest, but his desire to go unnoticed that was unsuccessful because there was a mother, a desperate mother, uh, who came looking for him. She found out that he was there and came searching for him. She was a Syrophoenician Greek. Now, that just means that she came for the part of Phoenicia that was Syrian and that she was Greek. Now, that doesn't tell you a whole lot except for the one very important thing. She wasn't Jew. She wasn't a Jew. And so she comes to Jesus and she asks for help. And here's the really kind of interesting thing. Well, actually, you know what? You're not going to believe me if I tell you. So let's just read it together, okay? Just so you really know that I'm not making this up. Mark chapter 7. Check this out. Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 24. And Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. All right, press the pause button for just a second here, okay? Did Jesus just tell a desperate mom that she was a dog? Is that what just happened? I mean, when you read that, doesn't it at least catch you a little bit off guard? I mean, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that Jesus would say. In fact, I remember the very first time I read this passage, I found myself saying, who are you and what did you do with Jesus? I mean, this just doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. And so, before you decide whether or not it sounds like something Jesus would say, let me provide you with a little bit of information. I think there are at least two important facts that you need to know to be able to make an informed decision about this passage. The first one has to do with Jews, which is what Jesus was, and Gentiles, which is what the desperate woman was. Do you guys know the distinction between Jews and Gentiles? 
All right, so for those of you who don't, let me just give it to you real quick. It is a, a distinction that is based on a, a specific and a generic, okay? So the specific is Jews. You see, Jews began as a man named Jacob 3,000 years ago, give or take, well, a, little, a little more than that. Uh, and Jacob, he had 12 sons. And Jacob has a wrestling match with God, and he gets his name changed to Israel. So see, before Israel was a nation, it was a guy. Israel had 12 sons. Now, those 12 sons turn, to be, turn out to be really prolific, and they become twa- tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And over the course of time, all of them together, collectively, they become the nation of Israel. Right? Now, the nation of Israel, they come and they inherit the promised land from God. And after, uh, after Joshua has led the nation of Israel to defeat all their enemies and secure their borders and have the promised land, uh, then uh, over a course of time, the nation of Israel decides that what they really need is a king. It was a really foolish idea, but they thought they needed a king. They asked for a king, and so God asked Samuel, and God told Samuel, go ahead and give him a king. And so their very first king was a guy named Saul, and I got to tell you, Saul wasn't like the best king in the world. In fact, he was... Well, he struggled as king. Let's just put it that way. And then there was a second king after Saul, and that was David. And David was amazing. In fact, David was first known as a man after God's own heart. And he was a phenomenal king, and he was a phenomenal leader. But then David kind of had a fall as well, and he had some significant struggles. He slept with his buddy's wife and engineered his buddy's death and those sorts of things. But then he kind of came back and he was a pretty good king afterwards. And then there was Solomon. He was the third king. Now Solomon, he, um, he's known in the scripture as the wisest man who ever lived. Now I'm just going to point out to you, I'm not arguing with scripture, but I'm just going to point out to you that Solomon had 300 wives and over 400 concubines. You decide... You decide. <laughs> but the wisest man who ever lived with his 300 wives, he, uh, he doesn't do such an amazing job. I mean, he's an okay king, but he gets, well, he gets caught up. In, I mean, who wouldn't? 300 wives. You know what I'm saying? And so he kind of loses the plot. And so when he dies, then his son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, he's the fourth king of all Israel. Now, listen, guys, I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. Just stay with me for just a little while longer, okay? So Rehoboam, the fourth king, he becomes king, and he is a very, very foolish young man. And so because of that, there's a civil war. Now, the civil war winds up ending with a divided nation. Israel is no longer all 12 tribes. Now, to the south and kind of to the east, the southeast, there are two tribes. That's Judah and Benjamin, and they become a nation to themselves called Judah. All right? And then there are these 10 tribes to the north and kind of to the west, and they become Israel. And Israel's capital is in Samaria, and Judah's capital is in Jerusalem. You guys still with me? Yeah, okay. So, 722 B.C., Samaria gets surrounded, and Samaria falls, and Israel is no more. It's just totally wiped off the map. Israel is gone. Now, only thing that's left is Judah, right? Well, along 599 B.C., a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, he sends his ace general, Nebuzaradan, he sends him to Jerusalem, and he lays siege to Jerusalem, and between 599 B.C. and 583 B.C., he destroys all of Jerusalem, and now Judah is no more with the exception of a few thousand citizens of Judah that they take into captivity and exile in Babylon. 
Now get this, because this is really kind of interesting. Well, or if you're a geek like me, it's interesting. So here's what happens. They get to Babylon, these thousands of exiles. And of course, the people of Babylon, I mean, they don't want to go through the hassle of when they were referring to someone from Judah saying, you know, the people who used to be the citizens of Judah or, you know, the exiles who used to be from Judah. And so instead, what they do is they just take where they're from, Judah, and they truncate the name and they begin to call them Jews. That's how they came to be called Jews, was in Babylon. Now, when their captivity is over, they come back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the walls of the city, and they rebuild the temple, and they establish themselves again as a nation. And they are a very exclusive nation, so they want nothing to do with the other ten tribes and wherever they've spread. They want nothing to do with the people who had been left behind when they were taken into captivity. And so to be a Jew meant that you were a very specific individual with a very specific history among a very specific family and it was exclusive that made you a Jew okay now a Gentile this one's pretty easy it's just everybody else No, really, a Gentile. If you're from Rome, you are a Gentile. And if you're from Greece, you're a Gentile. If you're from Arbutus, you are a Gentile. All right? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's the comparison. A specific with a generic. And that's how Jews thought. Us, them. God's chosen, everyone else. The good guys, the rubbish. You got it? Jew, Gentile. And as I pointed out, Jesus is a Jew, and this woman, she is a Gentile. And so you go back to this verse here in verse 27, because it's just kind of fascinating to me. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, you can dance around that verse all you want, but it sounds to me like Jesus is referring to her as a dog. Does that sound like something Jesus would say? Now, before you decide, let me just point one more thing out to you. This is the same Jesus who in the previous chapter fed over 5,000 guys and a whole huge crowd of people, and guess what? They weren't all Jews. This is the same guy who heals the centurion's servant when the centurion asked for help, and guess what? The centurion is a Gentile. This is the same Jesus who, when he tells the story about a man who's been beat down, ripped off, and left for dead, makes the hero, not a Jew, a Samaritan, a Gentile. This is the same Jesus who, in just a little while after this interaction, is going to take the disciples and he's going to go down to the Decapolis, and he's going to heal a man there in the Decapolis. And guess what? He's not a Jew either. He's a Gentile. This is the same Jesus who in the next chapter is going to feed, I think, a crowd of about 4,000 men plus all women and children. And guess what? They're not all Jews. So now, does this sound like something Jesus would say? No, it doesn't. Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like something a Pharisee would say. That's what it sounds like. Because, you see, Pharisees, they had a history of referring to people who weren't Jews as dogs. The Pharisees, they had a history of treating women who weren't Jews as subhuman. 
The Pharisees, they had a history of thinking that anyone outside their immediate circle was worthless and was actually kind of cursed by God. That's what the Pharisees thought. It sounds like something that a Pharisee would say. And so I want to suggest this to you, and you guys go home and study this and pray about it. Don't take my word for it, but I just want to suggest a possibility to you. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is doing satire. I want to suggest to you that this is a parody. That Jesus is doing his best impersonation of a Pharisee so that everyone can see how ludicrous it is. Now, the, the evidence behind my theory is this. Earlier in the chapter, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is having kind of a tete-a-tete with these uh, Pharisees. And the Pharisees are criticizing him and his disciples for how they wash their hands. Not because they're concerned about hygiene, but because they don't do the ceremonial way. In fact, Jesus in this interaction with them has to deal with the fact and say to them, Listen, fellas, you are concerned about stuff on the outside instead of the stuff on the inside. It's not the stuff that goes in you that makes you unclean. It's the stuff that comes out of you. In fact, in another place in Matthew, Jesus says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He wants us to know that it's not the color of your skin. It's not your social status. It's not the level of your education. It's not your business attainments or your business acumen. It's not the clothes that you wear. It's none of those things. He was telling the Pharisees, the stuff on the outside is not what matters. It's the stuff on the inside. And I believe that to drive the point home, he impersonates a Pharisee with this desperate woman. And this desperate woman is so quick-witted that she responds in kind. Listen to this. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed. And the demon... Gone. About three and a half years ago, my family and I were living in England. We were living in this city, uh, not a big city, uh, Stoke-on-Trent, about 225,000 people. And I was sitting in my back garden uh, with my boss, and uh, I was smoking my pipe. Um, And I don't know why that detail in the story is important to me, but it just always seems to be important that I want you to know that I was smoking my pipe. But I also want you to know that I'm a Baptist now, and so I'm not smoking my pipe. (laughs) Much. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I don't want to get any hate mail. Okay? Anyway. And we had just read this study in Stoke-on-Trent that 29% of the children across the city of Stoke-on-Trent live below the poverty line. In fact, in the estate that I worked, it was government-assistant housing, it was actually 35.5% of the children lived below the poverty line. One in three. Some of the most back-breaking, mind-numbing, soul-draining, gut-wrenching poverty you and I could imagine. And they were children, one in three, and they lived in it. And so I told my boss, I said, you know, we should do something about this. And he says, what do you want to do? I said, let's start a food bank. And he says, you ever started a food bank before? I said, no, but how hard can it be? 
right? You just go to the people who've got a little more food than they need, and you convince them to give that to the people who don't have quite enough food. And I mean, simples, right? And so he said, okay, go ahead. And so it was me and two other people, and we decided to start a food bank. And so we started this food bank, and in the span of two years, well, actually, I shouldn't say it that way. We happened to have been present from the very beginning to witness God start a food bank because it was just kind of a wild ride. In the span of two years' time, going from that conversation in my back garden, God put together the most amazing food bank, the Stoke-on-Trent Food Bank. We had 10 distribution centers scattered across the city. We had this warehouse. We had three full-time employees. We had literally hundreds of volunteers. We had people from all different denominations that were helping us. I mean, we had Methodist and Anglican and Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Pentecostal and uh, uh, Pentecostal Elam. We even had Baptist, man. I mean, we had everybody, you know? And it was so phenomenal that in the span of two years, are you ready for this? We distributed over 100 metric ton of food that had been donated. We didn't buy any of it. And we fed 20,000 people. That, that was a God thing, as I told you. That was totally a God thing. In fact, it was so wild that because we had become so successful, like I all of a sudden became like the spokesperson for the homeless and for the poor because that's who I hung out with, you know. And so, like, I was, I don't know how many times I was quoted in the, the newspaper and I had radio interviews and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and, you know, it sounds really cool until you do it and then it's not really cool because they always misquote you, so why do you even do the interviews? But... What did happen, and I got to tell you this because it was really cool, we had such an impact on the city that on the floor of parliament, they talked about our food bank, and here it comes. I'm not bragging. I just got to tell you this. I shook Prince Charles' hand. <laughs> and you can shake this hand too if you want to. <laughs> and here's the best part, and I got to tell you this because this is the truth. Prince Charles is shorter than me. Yes! How awesome is that? He's going to like be a king one day and he's going to have to wear elevator shoes. How cool, you know? But you know, of all of the things that happened with that food bank, the one thing I could have never predicted, I mean, the one thing that just absolutely blindsided me when we started, was I never knew how prejudiced I was. I guess it takes working with the poor before you realize that you've made assumptions about them, that you've generalized them, that you've put them in some box somewhere to keep distant from you. I guess it's only when you sit across from somebody who's been homeless for so many years and you just have a conversation and you look him in the eye and you treat him with respect and dignity that you discover that you had stopped seeing him as a human being a long time ago and just saw him and all the rest of the homeless as a problem that somebody should fix. I guess when you sit across from a woman who's holding ice on her face because she's been battered and you're trying to get her food because her husband has spent it all on drugs and alcohol and you hear her story, you come to realize that there are a whole lot more reasons that she has stayed with this abusive husband than you thought possible. And it wasn't as simple as just leave him. I guess. 
when you kneel on the sidewalk and you hold some kid who's going through DTs and you pray for him because he is so whacked out on whatever it is that he is on. He hasn't clue whether it's day or night, what day of the week is or anything else. You realize that a long time ago you stopped seeing him as a person and you just thought, you know what, if you're a drug addict, buddy, you get what you deserve. You shouldn't have made that choice in the first place. You realize that all of a sudden people who are alcoholics and people who are drug addicts, and you can just lump them all together. Because they don't deserve God's grace or mercy. At least they don't deserve it from me, right? But then, when you realize, when you realize that you're prejudiced, right? I mean, then you've got to do something about it, you know? I mean, before I could say I didn't know, but... Now I know. And so you, you have to do something about the assumptions that have gone untested and the barriers that have gone unchallenged and the walls that have gone intact and become reality for you. You just can't live and pretend that you didn't know because now you know. There's a passage I'd like to read to you. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's where we got the name Broken Wall for the church that we're planting in West Baltimore that you're supporting. That's where it came from, that verse right there. And I don't know if I'm smart enough to tell you everything that verse means, but I can tell you one thing. One thing that Jesus was saying very clearly, and that is that the only, only obstacle to the kingdom of God is the cross of Christ. The only obstacle to the church is the cross of Christ. The church cannot and should not be separated by the color of a person's skin or by the, by the accent that's in their voice or by their education level or their earned income ratio or by their employment status or by whether they own property or not. The only barrier to the kingdom of God is the cross of Christ. And so that passage captured my imagination and so I moved to West Baltimore, and the people who have come with us from, even people from this congregation who have come to build up that core, and we've decided a few things, and I want you to know about the church that you're sponsoring and that you're supporting. We have decided that Christian is a behavior, and it's not just a handful of theological tenets that you assent to. We have decided that we are not going to be consumers. 
We're not going to be purveyors of Christian goods and services anymore, but that we are going to take seriously our call from God, and especially where he says to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We are going to pursue doing justice, and we're going to pursue living humbly with our God and loving mercy. And not only are we going to do justice, but we're going to act justly. And not only are we going to act justly, we're going to speak on behalf of those who are being denied justice, who have no voice. In fact, what I want to tell you is, is that for many of us, we realize that when it comes to issues of justice with the oppressed, whether they're homeless or whether it's a race issue or, or any other type of issue, we realize that too often we've chosen to be neutral because we thought it was okay to be passive. As long as we didn't say anything, as long as we didn't join in the conversation, we weren't complicit. But we've realized that we are because it's our responsibility to speak out and to keep speaking out. And that's what we're going to do in that city. And we're going to do it until justice rolls down like a mighty river and righteousness flows like a never-ending stream or until we no longer have breath in our body. That's the church we dream of planting. That's the church that you're birthing. Let me just leave you. Let me just leave you with the words of Martin Luther King Jr. In the end, we will not remember the insults of our enemies, but rather the silence of our friends. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us today at the church at Severn Run. Please visit our website at severnrun.com for church service information, staff directories, or for prayer requests. And if you're in the D.C. Baltimore area, we'd love to have you join us at 8187 Telegraph Road in Severn, Maryland. We look forward to worshiping with you.